Talks on psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society journals and Congress debates worldwide, brought to you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This episode was created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction recorded by Andy Cohen. This podcast, Who's Afraid of the Impasse? Reflections about a Crossroads, stems from a clinical concern that Maria Paz de la Puente has seen become more and more important during her practice as a psychoanalyst. Appearing often in the clinical material of her colleagues and those she supervises, as well as in her own clinical experience. Many times, the impasse tends to go unnoticed. It gets confused with other clinical phenomena, which makes it necessary to illuminate in a special way. Its approach and complex technical implementation depends on it. In this podcast, she tries to look at the topics mentioned, emphasizing the necessary diagnosis and the vicissitudes of its approach. Maria Paz de la Puente is a Peruvian psychoanalyst living in Lima, Peru. She is a didactic member of the Peruvian Society of Psychoanalysis, FEPAL, and the IPA. She was an IPA board member as well as an SPP vice president on two occasions. She also teaches and supervises at her institution, the SPP, and is currently working full-time doing clinical work as well as community activity and work. Who fears the impasse? Considerations about a crossroads. Maria Paz de la Puente, Lima, October 2020. The impasse is one of the clinical situations that gives psychoanalysts the most headaches and heartaches. It deeply involves the analytic couple and the process. Complex ethical and technical issues converge in it. Being a corollary of unconscious intra- and intersubjective relationships, it may have unexpected and fateful outcomes. The analyst who experiences an impasse is driven to an existential crisis where profession and values are questioned, and even her clinical and theoretical notions seem jeopardized. In early psychoanalytical texts, the impasse was seen as an unwanted, feared, and hopeless situation. Currently, it is seen as an opportunity to deepen in the transference and countertransference bond, the field of the patient's relationship, hardships, and sometimes the analysts. The authors and theories differ in how they conceive its genesis, its treatment, its possible dissolution, and where the responsibility for its formation lies in the patient, the analyst, the couple, or the treatment. Perhaps in the method itself? Its presence is more frequent than it is possible to detect. Its difficult diagnosis and subtle approach make it a challenging matter. Let's get into it. What is the impasse? Its origins and dynamics. Its definition is simple but its silent action makes it complex, leading it to go unnoticed for a long time. Its resolution may be arduous, and sometimes a resounding failure awaits us. When a patient seeks an analyst, he does so with the need, conscious or unconscious, to alleviate suffering or conflict. 
When an analyst receives a patient, she puts into practice all of her knowledge and commits her whole self with the self of the patient. The power of this encounter could, however, languish due to forces that neutralize each other. An impasse can go undetected for years, generating a correct but devitalized analysis without passion until one of the members of the couple, or both, begin to feel a paralyzing discomfort, as if there was something false in the relationship exchange. That is when the red flags begin to pop up. Ichigoyen defines the impasse as a technical concept which involves an insidious halt of the process, tends to perpetuate itself. The setting is preserved in its fundamental constants. Its existence does not come to light as incoercible resistance or technical error, takes root in the psychopathology of the patient and involves the analyst's counter-transference. He adds that the impasse, by benumbing the analytic process, is the opposite of working through, since the latter points to the gradual domination of nuclear conflicts and fantasies. He ponders, at what point are we going to decide that the unceasing return of the same problems can no longer be considered working through, but rather impasse? This decision belongs entirely to the analyst, and we never know whether he takes it objectively or under the influence of the counter-transference engagement, which always exists in these cases. He points out that before considering the possibility of an impasse, the analyst must see it appear in her mind, in that of the patient, and in the clinical material. The authors agree that narcissism, early developmental crisis, traumatic situations, and severe deprivation in the first years of life are predisposing factors, but not sufficient. For Echigoyen, what matters is to be able to unravel which are the defensive and offensive modalities the narcissistic self makes use of to reach an impasse. Botner points out that although the negative therapeutic reaction derived from attacks to the analyst because of primary envy may be the origin of the impasse, he prefers to rely upon a model centered on primitive anxieties in the face of catastrophic change and on the defenses erected. Despite seeming to be a dead end, psychoanalysis itself proposes solutions where there is discouragement. The Berengers pose the existence of a bipersonal field, the product of the cross-projective identifications between patient and analyst and their respective cleavages. Later, Maid Berenger introduces the analytic field co-created by both members. The analyst must tune in to work in a prospective manner. They describe the bastion, a phenomenon in which the patient seeks refuge in fantasies of omnipotence as to not feel his vulnerability and to protect himself from the intrusion of the analyst, who in turn unconsciously allies herself with him. A certain degree of bastion is installed in the relationship periodically, and the analyst must continue her working through task to avoid the impasse. The analyst's mental functioning must allow her to get involved in the field, but reaffirming herself as a third party through the second look, like the Berenger's 
point out and transform the defensive bastions into true object relationships. Frequently, these clogs awake terror in archaic areas of the analyst, where its recognition will allow her to find a way out. Differentiating between the minds of both, analyst and patient, will be a complex and necessary task. To Antonino Ferro, the impasse is an accumulation of microfractures in communication that blocks the treatment that could become chronic. Its function is to protect the analytical couple from persecutory or depressive anxieties that cannot be tolerated. The impasse could correspond to primitive states of mind, and it will take a while, maybe a long while, to get solved, since there are aspects that are beyond the field of representation. Pharaoh states that the impasse has several functions. It provides the necessary time to metabolize the bastions. It is a pathological way to avoid mourning, and it is a prelude to change if the analyst by studying her patient and her counter-transference, can learn from the way the relationship unfolds. Giovancini and Boyer point out that the impasse is an unavoidable situation in patients who experience transference regressions, necessary on the path to cure. The patient's narcissistic character, the negative therapeutic reaction, or some counterindication to start psychoanalysis may contribute to its emergence. Neil Gobson poses that any aspect that drives the analyst away from the search of truth would generate an impasse. It could be a truth that frightens, annoys, or that is unbearable for the patient or the analyst. Classic psychoanalytic authors emphasize the importance of grasping fully and thoroughly the intersubjective dialectics and the effects of projective identification, as well as the transference and countertransference in each session. Diagnosis of the impasse. When sessions repeat themselves identically, without the possibility of change through time or working through, showing an immutable relation between analyst and analysand, we are undoubtedly facing an impasse. Despite a visible failure in treatment, it continues for a certain amount of time. Immediately we wonder, how long? A month? A year? The patient's whole analysis period? Neil Gofson points out that if we suspiciously observe some reanalysis, we will be tempted to answer affirmatively. Will the time factor really be decisive to define the impasse, or will time be the instrument through which we detect it? Let us imagine that the impasse has been installed and that we are facing the corpse of the analytic process. The suspects lay before us, patient and analyst. In this paradoxical crime, the ones in charge of finding the guilty are at the same time guilty. That is, patient and analyst have committed the crime, but it is they who must report themselves if they pretend to reanimate the corpse. That is why it is so hard to detect and work on an impasse. The responsibility always falls on the psychoanalyst, who should address the problem and its solutions. He must follow the clues, a dream, some phrases, lapses, a mute state, an indefinable void, 
frequent disconnections, somatizations, transference states, and counter-transference states of a particular kind. The psychoanalyst, a daring detective, deciphers the keys despite them being elusive to him. He will have to discover his unconscious alliances with a transferential identity induced by the patient or by his own personal and technical difficulties. He will have to scrutinize past his boredom, his impotence and frustration, as the treatment does not move forward despite having done the right thing. In turn, the patient is discouraged, does not improve, and feels trapped, fearing that by leaving the treatment, she could feel even worse. Free associations and symbolization decrease until they disappear. Some of the analyst and patient's dreams may allude to the impasse with images and feelings of stagnation or going around in circles, among others. With these clues, the psychoanalysis of the analytic process begins. But what happens in situations where we see no difficulty? For instance, when the analysand idealizes her analyst and he is satisfied with their situation without realizing that they have fallen into an impasse, he will not find any reason to look for help. What to do? Supervise all of our patients? How to sharpen our gaze to detect possible impasses? Perhaps reanalyzing ourselves, supervising and auscultating our narcissism. Exerting a healthy suspicion on the analysis in which we feel good. Investigating boring patients, those who we want to discharge. The complacent and passive, and especially the good patients. Putting the counter-transference under scrutiny, session by session, delving into the conflict amidst the relationship. And how to tell apart the impasse from classic resistance? Some might say for its durability and intensity. Others, because resistances do not compromise the analyst and are more objective. The denouncing aspect of the phenomenon would undoubtedly be the stereotype, the continuous repetition of the same thing. Balagnini poses that in general, during these stereotypical and mediocre sessions, mutual fear and aggressiveness underlie the relationship. He points out that we could be led to an occasional and symptomatic preconscious rejection of the existence of the internal world in our patient and ourselves. Without analyzing countertransference, the working atmosphere becomes impoverished. The analyst becomes foolish blind, worried or reactive, unable to identify projective identifications. He could also be possessed by traumatic events or internal objects of the patient that feed on the analyst, not recognized, not integrated, and not metabolized. After the analyst detects the presence of an impasse, he may realize that his self is not really involved with the patient's self and that he has lost his ability to play remaining on the surface of an ego functioning. For Bolognini, the analyst has to recover his abilities to be an analyst who feels, and not just an analyst who sees. What is seen might be correct, but it does not touch or produce changes. The trigger of motion will depend on the analyst's capacity to step out of his defensive omnipotence, his rigidity and stiffness, and regain his sensitivity, perception, working through potential, his spontaneity, and communicative richness.
The impasse in the initial stages is traversed by the reversion of the perspective, a term that Echigoyen borrows from Bayan, but applying it to this technical situation in which analyst and patient have a manifest agreement in the analytic setting, but the latent disagreement is total. The patient makes a parallel and hidden contract where the analyst's intervention will be reinterpreted. For example, the patient claims to be going through analysis to comprehend her problems, but deep down she wants to prove something else, perhaps her superiority. Therefore, her hidden goal in life and in the treatment is to impose her premises and defeat the analyst, in consequence attacking the contract. Madeline Berenger raises the concept of bad faith, which is in part a subtle breach of the fundamental rule. For instance, the patient handpicks the material, leaving out those associations that would give her away. It is a systematic behavior on the edge of the conscious unconscious. The bastion acts in these moments, as in any other moment of the analysis, blinding the analytic couple. In the beginning, the impasse is much more frequent than we could have thought, and easily confused with the resistances. When the impasse occurs during treatment, it is branded by the NTR as a paradoxical response to the achievements and advances resulting from the analysis. Some authors point to the possible envy of the patient towards the analyst who can relieve her. Nogotian points out that the NTR may be insidiously installed as impasse in the form of complaints, endless criticisms that generate in the analyst a sort of fatalistic countertransference, as well as feelings of boredom and disappointment. In some cases, it brings about abrupt and virulent dropouts from treatment. The analyst becomes frustrated and feels tempted to use a non-analytical parameter or to interrupt therapy. The therapist's emotional response will determine if the impasse will be an obstacle or an impulse to go deeper. Mostardero points out some aspects, ethically permeated, that can limit the capacities of the analyst. A. The identification with the analysis internal objects, while being trapped in a vicious transference circle, increased by negative countertransference. B. The excessive narcissism, his omnipotence and his masochist aspects. C. To allow himself to be enveloped by the idealization of the patient. D. His rigid theoretical positioning. E. His, his convenience prevailing over that of the patient. If symbiotic mechanisms participate in the bastion, symbiotization has been replaced by par parasitism in the impasse. The second look seems the main instrument to question the phenomenon and essential to get away from it, even when the analyst has been involved in its construction. Currently, in the new pathologies, the degree of commitment that's required of the analyst is even greater. What is demanded of the analyst is more than his effective capacity and empathy. It is his mental functions which are demanded, for the patient's structures of meaning have been put out of action. Green. The impasse at the end of the process. Freud suggested that there is a split and repressed area that reinforces its defenses when the end of analysis is near, reaching a certain level of impasse. This can be expected in almost all processes. 
Echigoyen points out that another strategy of the ego, the acting out, is set into motion to attack the task, that is, the analytic setting, giving place to the action. The impasse is related to separation anxieties, feelings of vulnerability and dependency conflicts. It avoids thinking and elaborating. The impasse can manifest in an abrupt rupture or in regressions that encourage an eternal bond. On the other hand, the patient could provide her analyst with aspects that she knows he can value as signs of improvement to convince him of the analysis. The goal would be to avoid the fantasy that the analyst could be upset if she leaves. The analyst could try to retain the patient for various reasons, narcissistic ones for the most part. Approaching the impasse. Fortunately, we psychoanalysts are trained not to give up easily in the face of adversity, and once the impasse is detected, we will consider how to approach it. Donald Meltzer points out that the impasse ensues on the threshold of the depressive position when the patient has to deal with her moral pain, her guilt, and her evil. It usually appears as a dangerous siren song where both members of the analytic couple get caught in a mutual idealization. Meltzer reworked the Freudian technique of analysis interruption and applied it to combat the impasse. The analyst modifies the analytic setting to avoid the stagnation and to produce a jolt in the patient's defenses. However, there is the risk of replacing the impasse by an NTR or, what would be even worse, by a submissive attitude towards the analyst's desire, who in this scheme seems to know in advance the adequate rhythm of treatment to lead the patient to the cure. Therefore, the change in the analytic setting has to be carefully implemented. Botner points out that the core of the defensive system in the face of primitive anxieties is produced in an object that he calls frozen. He proposes a technique so that the frozen object becomes part of the associative activity. This will produce an increase in the patient's interest in the work, in her own productions, as well as in the analyst's interpretations and a recovery of the vital tone. The patient realizes the interference function of the object in her evolution and becomes interested in the analysis of the said frozen object and its functions. It goes from egocentonic to egodystonic. Depending on the type of relationship of the analysis characteristics, the analyst, and the moment of the process, the analyst will implement the most appropriate strategies via interpretations and indications of the repressed and split aspects or via more confrontational interventions. The latter may consist of looking at the problem directly and propose strategies in concurrence. The analyst who does not fear the impasse is the one in charge of sharpening his work instrument, his mind and his self to access the patient's internal movements and understand the different languages in which they will be expressed, either from the fusion tendencies, the somatic exclusion, the decatectization, non-figural ability, the states of non-representation. If the analyst cannot access the regressive pathway, he will not be able to represent aspects of his patient, which will be left pressing elsewhere, generating an impasse situation.